Amen. Good morning once again, and thank you, John. Thank you, instrumentalists and vocalists and choir, all of you who have been a part of helping to prepare our hearts to worship this morning. Today, uh, we continue in our series in Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 12. We turn the page from chapter 11 into chapter 12 today. And you'll remember chapter 11 brings together the authority of Jesus and the, uh, the presupposed authority of the, the temple leadership, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders. They, they think they've got the religious stuff under control. They can get along just fine without Jesus. If Jesus would just come and give them everything they've ever wanted, and then they could kind of ignore his demands on their life, that would be great. And that didn't go over so well with Jesus. And so they had a, a debate, you'll remember last week, about the authority of Christ. And sort of that conversation is continuing. That's the context in which we encounter Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and a message that I've called, This Came About from the Lord, the Vineyard and the Cornerstone. It's important to remember that salvation comes from God, it belongs to God, it points to God, right? It's not something we can produce in and of ourselves, it's God's work. And that's the lesson of the vineyard and the cornerstone. So would you hear with me God's word from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to sin. Aren't you glad the Father had one more to sin? <coughs> A beloved Son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my Son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir, the one who gets the inheritance. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the vineyard, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Would you pray with me? God, I, I pray in the moments that we have together this morning around your word that your Holy Spirit who inspired this word would now illumine our lives and our minds and our hearts through it. God, that you would give us eyes to see the beautiful things in your word, that you would give us eyes to see where our lives are not yet built on Christ the cornerstone, that they are teetering and they are tottering because we have not yet built our lives on the proper foundation. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To understand a parable, it is important 
to, to identify those major points of comparison. A, a parable is like a big metaphor, a big analogy. And so we're going to take a few moments this morning before we really get into the preaching to just kind of identify those points of comparison between the parable and spiritual reality. Okay? First, the man or the landowner, the one who owns the vineyard, is analogous to God the Father. The vine growers or the tenants in the vineyard are analogous to Israel's corrupt leadership. And really, any Israelites who missed the point that it wasn't about them, but it was about God's son that he was going to give through them. The slaves that are sent by the landowner are the many true prophets of God who were rejected by Israel and the Israelites. And then the vineyard itself is God's plan to glorify His Son and give Him a people. A, a real group of worshipers. He goes all the way back to God's original design in the garden. He, he creates a garden and He puts Adam there and He says, well that's not enough. I, wa I want Eve there too. And you're supposed to fill this land with worshipers. God has always wanted, uh, since His creation, uh, a people who would be committed and dedicated and uh, oriented their lives around the glory of Christ, His Son. The Father so loves His Son, He wants the world to glorify His Son. That's why we enjoy singing to Him, right? That's why we enjoy times of congregational worship and of praise, is this is what we were made for. We were made to enjoy and to glory in Christ the Son. And not just the Son. Verse 6 tells us about the beloved Son of the owner of the field. The beloved Son is Jesus. In Mark chapter 1 verse 11, do you remember at Jesus' baptism that the Father declares that we should behold His beloved Son? At the transfiguration in chapter 9 verse 7, God says, Behold my beloved Son, hear Him or listen to Him. The Son is the one to whom we should listen. He's the one we should pay attention to. He's the one we should glory in. And God has a vineyard representing a, a people and a purpose and a plan, and He expects a harvest for His beloved Son. But the leaders of the temple are withholding God's harvest. By the way, this passage reads a whole lot like Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You'll, you don't need to turn there now, but later today, if you'd like, take a look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. God says, I, I had a vineyard, I had a people, and I expected to get good grapes from these people, but all I got was bad, wild grapes. I didn't get out of the harvest what I intended to get. And so with this parable, Jesus is telling a story about the rebellion of Israel's leaders and the rejection of God's Son, and yet of God's unstoppable desire to honor His beloved Son and for His Son to get a vineyard in spite of our rebellion. God will have a people who will bear fruit for His beloved Son. The story of the Israelite people is a story of a stiff-necked people and of God's unbelievable patience with them. People who often didn't see themselves as tenants in the vineyard, but as people who owned the vineyard themselves. They didn't want God to get His fruit from His vineyard because they wanted to throw God away as the ultimate authority in their lives. Which is quite frankly, apart from God, what we all want. Unless the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out, we want the vineyard for ourselves. We want the glory for ourselves. Are you all here this morning? And so look at verse 7. They, they, God sends His Son, the, 
the landowner sends his only beloved son and the respect and the honor and the homage that Christ is due is something that they wanted for themselves. They, say, they said to themselves, the inheritance that Christ should get is something we'll get for ourselves. Mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders understood this parable. They understand it's spoken against them. And then that raises the question, well, why did Mark bother to put it in his gospel then? Because if it was spoken against them, then what relevance does it have to my life? Why is it in here for the gospel that's given to the church? Because it's not just a warning to the temple leaders centuries ago. It's also a warning to the church that we would get around the things of God, that we would have the things of God, that we would know the Spirit and the presence of God, and somehow that we would want to make it about ourselves rather than about Christ the Son. It's not just a warning for them. It's a word for us. Mark is simultaneously showing us God's incredible patience and His unstoppable plan. A plan to have a fruitful vineyard for His Son. So you better get on board. Because God's going to win and Christ is going to get the glory with or without us. So if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, if we're going to be a part of His gardener, of His vineyard, we're going to be a part of the people who are committed to the glory of Christ's Son to faithfully serve in God's vineyard. I think we see four things in this parable. Actually, we see a lot more than that. But I didn't want to keep you here until 3 o'clock. So I'm going to give you these four broad, quick themes this morning. First, we must not view God's absence as indifference. Do you know what indifference means? I don't care. Uh, our teenagers, our students, express their indifference with this word, whatever. Right? Whatever. God is not indifferent. Just because He sometimes seems absent. Secondly, we must not view, excuse me, we must understand the rejection of God's Son. Nope, that's not it either. We must not view God's patience as permission to sin. Thirdly, we must understand the rejection of God's Son will not stop God's mission to glorify His Son. And then finally, we must delight in God's marvelous salvation. First, we must not view God's absence as indifference. In verse 1, a man plants a vineyard. He builds a wall and a tower for its protection. And he puts a wine press and a vat in the vineyard. Which symbolizes the fact that God is expecting some fruit, some productivity from His vineyard. Jesus is showing us that God, like the man in the parable, went to great expense on behalf of the vineyard. And God, therefore, had every right to expect a bountiful harvest from His vineyard. But look at what the man did in verse 1. You see those last few words in verse 1? He went on a journey. And I submit to you, church, when it seems that God is distant, we often struggle with obedience, don't we? Can, can we be real with one another? Can we be honest? That, that in those times that it seems that God is unaware, that He's distant, it, it's even easier to fall into rebellion. It's even easier to act as though God is not there or it won't matter. And we see this throughout Scripture, right? God comes to Moses in the appearance of a burning bush. Clearly God is there, and yet Moses, what does he do? He stutters and he stammers and says, I can't go to Egypt for you. You need somebody else. God, God, Moses finally agrees, right? And then the Israelites look up to 
the top of the mountain, the glory cloud, and God is doing business with Moses and giving the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites are down there, what? Building a, an idol to, the, to Baal. And Moses comes down, he's like, are you kidding me? I mean, God is physically present, you can see it, and you're still sitting. How much more, when we think that God is absent in those seasons of our lives of dryness, do we want to run away from church and run away from our Sunday school class and we just say, well, God doesn't care, but God does care. Adam and Eve learned this the hard way. God would come and apparently in some physical sense and walk with them in the cool of the day. But during the daytime, while it was called today, they finally got around and said, you know, let's just go ahead and sample the forbidden fruit. God's not around right now. We'll be okay. And then they weren't okay. Church, God is always looking. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So even when it seems like He's on a journey, He's well aware of what's going on with what we're doing with the things that He's entrusted to us. God knows everything. He numbers all the stars, trillions and trillions of stars, and He knows them all by name. Psalm 147 verse 4. He knows the numbers of the hairs on your head, even you bald guys. Matthew 10, 30. He even knows the secrets of your heart. Psalm 44, 21. He knows what's going on. He knows the sinful patterns of your life that you're accepting and, and believing that God is indifferent, that He doesn't know that His seeming absence is indifferent. He sees the heart. As Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is important, church. God sees the heart. He's not impressed with my sport jacket this morning. He's not impressed with this nice button-up shirt that my sweet in-laws gave me for Christmas and I think looks really snazzy, but He could care less. God sees the heart. And we're in a time of transition at North Roanoke. We've got some great opportunities before us. We're looking for a new student pastor. We'll be looking for someone to assist us in worship or some other roles in the future. And I want you to know from the bottom of your pastor's heart that we're looking for men of God. We're looking for men who aren't impressed with themselves, but they are impressed with the Savior. We're looking for men who make much of Jesus. We're looking for men who will live by example who will give attention to their own hearts and encourage us to give attention to our hearts as well and who will encourage us day after day after day after day as long as it is called today so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 13, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13. So that none of us would believe that God has somehow flown the coop and that He doesn't care. He cares and He sees. Look at verse 2. It's harvest time. And it was harvest time in Israel. The Israelites had every reason to know who Christ was. He had given them an entire Old Testament pointing the way to Jesus. And now the time has come and they reject Him. They miss Him. They don't get it. They, they do not receive Christ the Messiah. Did you know that God knows the seasons of your lives as well? I turned 40 in March of this year. I'm, I'm, if God gives me a normal life, I'm at that midpoint. There's no guarantee it could be taken tomorrow. But if he gives me 80 years, I'm at the midpoint. I'm far enough along that I can look back and remember when I was 7 years old and 
came to saving faith in Christ, but I'm old enough that I can look forward and I can see my parents and my, my in-laws and I can see others of their age who, who are in that transition phase between grandparenting and then beginning to run into health difficulties. I can see every phase of life laid out before me. I know what it's like to walk into a hospital room when somebody draws their last breath. I know what it's like to walk into a hospital room when somebody's just given birth. I can see it all laid out before me. And here's what God showed me this week. People live their entire lives looking to the next season. People trust in Christ when they're 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. They say, maybe when I'm a teenager, I can do something for God. I'm too young. Then they become teenagers and they say, well, I've got to be popular at school. And if I actually live for Jesus at Northside or Botetide or William Byrd or wherever it is that God has me, if I actually make a stand for Christ now, then I'll be a weirdo and I'll be a wacko and people make fun of me. I, I can't do it in this season of my life. But when I get to college, I'll really live for Jesus because they have cool stuff in college. They've got Campus Crusade for Christ and groups for students. And that's when I really get on fire for Jesus. And then you go to college and you get overwhelmed and there's more temptation than you ever imagined. And then you say, well, you know, everybody else just gave in in college, so I'll give in too. And then I'll get my life right after college. And then you get into your career. And you got to please your boss. Got to put in extra time on Saturday, extra time on Sunday. He's got to know, she's got to know you're really all in on this job thing. And somewhere along the way, you meet your wife and you meet your husband and you begin to build a family together. And life gets even busier than you ever imagined. I mean, my wife, who I never thought would drink coffee, she thought it was bitter and terrible and nasty. When we had our second son and I thought he was going to die from malnutrition because he couldn't keep anything down. And he was keeping us awake all hours of the night. Suddenly, Stacy was two cups a day. Coffee's a great thing. It's a gift of God. <laughs> but you know, you get so busy raising your kids and getting them to soccer and swim practice and t-ball, flag football, band. Now we're 35, 40, 45 years old. And there's that. Little boy, that young girl that said, maybe one day I'll have a season when I do something for God. Well, once Junior turns 18 and he gets out of the house, then we'll have more time. Really? Time for who? Time for ourselves. We'll finally get to enjoy that beach house. We'll finally get to take more vacations. Finally get to do more this, that, and the other. Then they enter the same cycle and they have grandkids and life is consumed with grandchildren and then all of a sudden you get a diagnosis and you find yourself at Roanoke Memorial Hospital and you get news that you didn't want to get and suddenly the whole life that you had an opportunity and you had seasons along the way to enjoy giving your life back to God as an offering of praise for the salvation that He's given to you. You missed it. You missed it all. This morning, church, I want to urge you from the bottom of my heart, whatever season you're in, whatever time you've got left, Jesus comes and He says, it is your time and I want a harvest from your life. And it's not a selfish harvest, by the way. There's no more joy in the Christian life than having fruit to give to our King. Than leading someone to saving faith in Christ. 
than, than having the fruit of the Spirit genuinely on the inside rather than moping around all the time depressed. Why? Not because we're bad people, but because we haven't released ourselves daily to the joy of giving something back to God. That's where the joy in the Christian life is found. But even if we understand, church, that God's absence does not mean that He is indifferent, there's a second danger. And it is that we would view God's patience as permission to sin. God's patience in this parable is remarkable. He sends a slave to get the fruit that he deserves from his own vineyard. But do you see what happens in 2 and 3? They beat him and they have to send him away empty-handed. And there's a question I had to ask myself this this week as I was preparing. If God were to send someone to collect fruit from my life today, would I have to send him away empty-handed? Or would the servant find me? Would he find you? Would he find North Roanoke Baptist Church eagerly devoting our lives to Christ who is the rightful heir of God's vineyard. The joy in life is found when we offer ourselves in worship and service to Christ. And we know that this is true. And yet living for ourselves and our own glory is so deeply ingrained in us. Left to ourselves, we're no different than my kids arguing about who gets to pick the movie on the way to vacation. That drives me crazy. I mean, that you even have a DVD player at all and get to watch anything at all is a gift of God. When I grew up, we rode around in a 1968 station wagon with a line in the bench seat. And our game was, if you cross that line, you're going to pay. <laughs> we didn't have tablets. We didn't have movies. She had to be quiet. Period. No distractions. And now they complain. I mean, they're like, well, we didn't get to watch a movie until halfway down the road. You better be glad you got a tablet at all. And then they argue about which movie goes on the DVD. I, I'm telling DVD. I'm telling you, there are times when that stuff happens in the Palmer car that I just pull over. Like that conversation is not going to continue. I'm trying to get to a vacation destination. I just pull the van over and I say, "It's going to stop now." And there's not going to be any movie if it continues. You say, well, that's not very patient. No, it's not. And you better be, you better be glad that I'm not God. Because God is incredibly patient. I mean, look at what he does in verse 4. They just killed his, or they just injured his slave and sent him back. And God's like, well, I'll send another slave. Not to destroy them, which is pulling the van over, you knuckleheads. Be quiet. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He sends another slave not to destroy the people, but to get the fruit that belongs to him. Jesus heaps up words of repetition in verse 4 to help us marvel at God's incredible patience. In verse 4, the, a literal translation of the original language would say this, And again he sent to them another slave. And again, another. Jesus is showing us by the way he tells the story. Can you believe this landowner? Can you believe how generous and patient and amazing he is? But the Israelites did not marvel at God's patience. Instead, they presumed upon it. They wounded God's slave in the head and they treated him shamefully, verse 4. And then in verse 5, God says, that's it, I'm done with you. No, that's not what he does at all. He sends another slave who is killed. 
And then he sends, do you, get, do you see that? Many more. Who are these slaves, these servants of God? This is the story of the faithful prophets of God down through the generations that God sent to warn Israel to turn to Him. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Jeremiah 20 verse 2. According to, to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in half. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. 2 Chronicles 24, 21. Nehemiah writes this. The Israelites were disobedient and rebelled against God and cast His law behind their back and killed His prophets who had warned them to turn back to Him. And so God says, that's it, I'm done with you. No, He sends His only Beloved son. God tests Abraham's faith and he says, take your son, your only son whom you love. Genesis 22 verse 2. And he says, go sacrifice him up on the mountain. And on the third day they get to the mountain and, I, and Abraham lifts up his eyes to the mountain where he's going to have to sacrifice his son. And God says, right as he draws the knife, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Why? Because I've got a ram for you to sacrifice in place of your son who deserves to die. Because one day I'm not going to provide a ram, I'm going to provide a lamb. And it's not going to be your only begotten son. It's going to be my only begotten son. Because he alone will be qualified to rescue sinners all over the world from their sin. God does what even Abraham doesn't have to do. Look at that. Move that back right there. As Edwards writes, what farmer in his right mind would surrender his son to such tenants? What had the tenants done to deserve that they would get Jesus? Zero. What have we done to deserve God's salvation? Zero. All we had done was rejected and pushed away, and yet God sent His Son. He did what no landowner would do. He sent His Son for us. God has many servants, by the way, but He sends His one Son. He has just one more to send, verse 6. It is Jesus or bust. What you do with Jesus will determine what God ultimately does with you. You say God is patient. He is. But there is an end of God's patience. And it is Jesus. There are many forerunners to Christ, but now He sends His final solution. Surely Israel's leaders would not miss God's incredible grace and His patience in the sending of His own Son, right? Surely, this would break them of their desire to selfishly hoard God's blessings. Surely, they would respect God's Son. No, they killed Him and threw Him out of the vineyard, which means they didn't even crucify Him in the city limits. They took Him outside the city. The longer that we go on rejecting Christ, the longer we risk missing out on the purpose of God's patience, that we would repent and respect Christ and bear much fruit. The sooner that we honor Jesus as the rightful heir of our lives, verse 7, the sooner that we find life. But the longer that we delay, the closer we come to the end of God's patience. Because the, every time you hear a sermon, every time the Spirit of God begins to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment, every time that a hymn of response is played and you say, God is dealing with me, but I don't want to respond to Him right now, there's a hardening of the heart that begins to happen. What we do with Jesus is what happens to us. As Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is God's ultimatum. Is Jesus or bust? When considering what is at stake and how we respond to Jesus, Spurgeon says this, The Lord Jesus Christ is God's well-beloved. And if you are wise, He will be yours. Beware lest you reject one whom God loves so well, for He will take it as an insult to Himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight His Son. 
In grieving Christ, you vex the very heart of God. Therefore, do not do it. I beseech you by the love which God bears to His Son to listen to this matchless messenger of mercy who would persuade you to repent. Unfortunately, there are some who go on rejecting Christ. There are some who keep presuming upon His patience. We live in a country and in a culture, quite frankly, where people are presuming upon Jesus all the time. And we can get discouraged as a church. We can begin to think, well, God's losing, but God's not losing. That's the message of verses 9 and 10. That we've got to understand that the rejection of God's Son by some is not going to stop God's mission to glorify His Son by any others who will receive Him. You see, the arrogance of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders has led them to, to conclude that they should be the ones who own the vineyard. They're, they're like people complaining that they don't... Alright, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off track for just a second, I'm sorry, but... You know the whole $15 minimum wage movement? Y'all y'all there? Yeah. The big fat cat owners, the big employers, the big corporation, it's always bad. You know what big corporations do? They employ people. They provide jobs. And I'm not here to make a political argument, but God is, Jesus is basically saying that we're being like people who God has provided for. He's given them a vineyard and he comes and he says, I, I want a harvest of your life. I've provided everything you need for that. And now you want to withhold it from me and you're saying that God's the bad guy? What are you talking about? As Edwards writes, the vineyard is not a human possession. It's not even Israel's possession. But God's possession. It's his work and purpose in history. Which raises this question, what is God's work and purpose in history? It's to glorify His Son, John 17. The Father wants the glory of His Son to be known among all peoples and all places and all the earth. And the Father's desire, by the way, should be our message. You need to see this Son that I know. You need to stop trying to find glory in yourself and start looking to the One who is all glorious because that's where meaning and purpose and joy is found. And if the Sanhedrin will not point people to Christ, then God will use their rejection of Jesus to bring His glorious salvation to others. Do you see that in verse 9, the word others? What does that mean? It means God will even bring Gentiles in. God will use anybody. He'll, he'll use uh, that. I was, I was in downtown Rhode the other day, and there were two ladies dressed in full Muslim garb walking down the sidewalk. Now the first thing I thought was probably not very positive. But the second thing I thought was this. God sent His Son for those women. And if, if I would be so bold and arrogant as to withhold from them the message of God's grace, who do I think I am? I think I'm the vineyard owner. I'm just a tenant in God's field. And He has a purpose to send the message of His saving grace and goodness to all kinds of people. And North Roanoke, we've got to be very careful. God doesn't need us. We need God. And, and He can full well use a whole bunch of other people and pass us by. We can reject the glory of God's Son. We can say, Jesus, we just want to put you on a bumper sticker on our sign. But do we don't really want to live for you. We don't really want you to have a harvest of productivity from our own lives. And when we do that, God says, okay, i got some other people. Who can labor in my vineyard? God doesn't need us. 
But thank God He allows us to join Him in His great work and His mission in this world. I think sometimes we get too concerned about the fact that Jesus isn't doing polling too well in our culture, in our country today. I used to teach an American government class and I found a survey that said more than 80% of Americans say that if they knew the person running for the President of the United States was an evangelical Christian regardless of party, that they would not vote for him. More than 80%. Evangelical Christianity, true Christianity is the most rejected brand of religion in, the, in our country today. We think we live in a Christian country. What are we talking about? But here's the good news. Regardless of how Jesus polls on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, it does not matter. Because people cannot stop God's mission to glorify His Son even when they reject His Son. Because there's still others that Jesus came for. And Jesus knows this. His self-identity here is amazing. He goes back to the Hebrew Scriptures in Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23, and He quotes from them to say, the cornerstone of God's salvation that you've been looking for, He's standing right in front of you. God will take the rejection of Jesus and He will make Him the Redeemer of not just Israel, but of all nations. As Achan writes, God in a marvelous reversal takes what man rejects and makes it the cornerstone. The stone most important to the whole structure. The stone that ensures its stability and symmetry. You say, my life is all out of sorts. I don't know which way to turn. You've got to run to the cornerstone and build your life on Him. That is where life begins to make sense. Though Jesus is cast aside by the Israel, Israel, Israelite leadership as worthless, He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one who is worthy of our praise and our energy and our attention and our affection because He's the only stone we can build our lives on. And by the way, He is also the only stone that God builds His true church on. Did you know that Jesus doesn't build true churches on a love for familiar faces? Well, I, I know all those people there. And, and these new people I don't know very well. What am I going to do about that? Jesus didn't build His church on a love for familiar faces. He didn't build His church on the fact that your family's been there for 40 years. Did you know Jesus doesn't build His true church on a love for country music or even a love for country? He doesn't build His true church on a love for a particular ministry or a popular pastor. The true church of God is built upon Christ, the solid rock, the cornerstone. The true church of God is built upon preaching and singing and fellowship and serving and going that are all about Him and for Him and by Him because we are overwhelmingly grateful to have been included in God's vineyard in the first place. Jesus is the only foundation that never fails, church. Even the rejection of Jesus will not have the final say. His rejection is just going to make Him even more glorious. Though we at first rejected Him, He turns our rejection into His resurrection and offers Himself as the cornerstone of our lives and our marriages and our church and of any who will come to Him. And when we consider, do you ever think about what you deserve? Do you ever just sit there and think, God, why? Why? Me? And when you do, does it not overwhelm you with great gratitude for the fact that Christ is yours and you are Christ? Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love.
Which brings us to the application of this sermon this morning. If all of that is true, then we must delight in God's marvelous salvation through His Son. If there's a, a weakness in my preaching that I'm aware of, I'm sure there are many weaknesses, but one of them is, you, you might come away and say, well, I'm not sure how to apply that in my life today. He, he teaches a little too much. What I try to do in each of my points, you'll notice, is I, I try to say, we must do this. What is the implication of the text? So if you go back over your sermon notes from the last three years, you'll see most of the points are, we must ABC. We must ABC. I, I try to design it as applicational from the top, but I, by default, I, I'm a teacher. But, but if there's one point of application this morning, it's this. We've got to delight in God's marvelous salvation through His Son. And I think this is where the church has lost it a little bit. Everybody, we're tired, we're sleepy, we're grumpy, we're depressed. Have you remembered what God did for you? When you woke up this morning, did you re remember that you were fast bound in sin and nature's night and headed for a dark, abysmal eternity and God sent a bunch of messengers. He sent preachers. He sent devotions. He sent all this stuff. But ultimately, He sent His Son for you. Are y'all here? Are you excited to be here? Are, are you grateful for what God has done for you through Christ? Because the one that was rejected has become the basis of my acceptance. The one that the world wrote off as a lunatic is now lauded as the living Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was crucified is the cornerstone. How is this possible? How can the rejected and beaten and mocked and crucified Son be the glorious foundation of life and ever life everlasting? Verse 11, this came about from the Lord. God did it. And how did He do it? He raised His Son to rescue sinners. He raised Him up on the third day. His justice was poured out on His Son and His love went out to sinners that they might be transformed from self-serving people into people who love the living Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us gratitude in the place of our guilt. And what the Lord has done in glorifying His Son and making a way of hope for us, look at verse 11. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word marvelous very much. It's just marvelous. Well, I mean, what does that even mean? I, I don't know. It means stupefyingly wonderful. Not sure if that helped anybody. Unfathomable. Unbelievable. And yet it happened. Undeserved. And yet He did it. The next verse in Psalm 118 is, we heard earlier this morning, Brother Steve read it. The next verse says this, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in that. It's the most impossible reversal the world has ever known or will ever know. Could there be anything more marvelous than what God has done for sinners by sending His only beloved Son? And the question for us, church, is how will we respond? If you're one of those this morning who's been taking advantage of God's patience and thinking that He's absent, I want to urge you this morning to come and bow the knee of your life and surrender to the living Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're going to look up and find that there's nothing like taking great delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's some of you here this morning, you've been in a funk. 
You've been worn down. You've been depressed. And I know there's all sorts of causes and reasons that go with that. But might one of the reasons be that you've forgotten to take a look back at what God did for you? Might one of the reasons be that we're in the routine of coming to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We forgot the reason we're here. It's because He's the risen King of glory. And He's the cornerstone that came down and rescued me. So I don't, I don't know what your need is this morning. But I know that in dealing with this text, I was convicted and convinced that the one thing that I need to do is I need to worship more. That the fruit that God most wants from my life is not my money or my fortune or my service. Yes, He wants and expects those things, but the number one thing God wants from my heart is warm-hearted, hot devotion to the living Lord Jesus Christ. He wants me to wake up ready to worship the King of glory. So this morning, as our instrumentalists come, I want to ask you, as we pray, to search your heart and to ask God, where am I falling short of building my life on the cornerstone? And give me, Holy Spirit of God, a renewed passion to worship Christ, the King of glory. Would you pray with me? Christ our King, You are worthy of our praise. And Lord, for the, for the student or the senior adult who's here and says, in this season of my life, I'm not, I'm not being fruitful and I want to be fruitful in the kingdom of God, I, I ask that you would give them liberty to come and to, to do business with you. God, for the one who's been hanging on and saying, I, I want the vineyard for myself, I don't want to give glory to Christ, today that you would break them of their selfishness and let them look to Jesus the Savior. And God, corporately, congregationally as a church, God, I pray that as we sing this song, that you would, you would blow the lid off this place, God, as we think about how much you've loved us. God, how you were patient and long-suffering and you sent your Son for us. We, we didn't deserve your love and yet you've loved us. And so we want to return your love for us by loving your Son well as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.